The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be on Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Melanie. Kids, I love it when you guys are up here. It's so much fun to see you here and to hear not only your answers to the questions, but the things you volunteer. Um, It's always an adventure. Thank you for that. So we're continuing in this series, The Psalms of Ascent, and uh, this is part six, so there are 15 of them, and so we're getting close to the halfway point. Um, and we've entitled this psalm, A Place Where You Belong. And I love this psalm. I love the way that it, I love this psalm as a prayer, to, to pray this prayer to the Lord. Because there are things in it that are, on the one hand, deeply encouraging. And then there are other things in it that are, that are pretty convicting as well. So we're going to get into it, but uh, I just love this passage of Scripture. So I am a child of the 1980s. I was born in 1973, uh, and so I remember movies like Back to the Future and Goonies and Karate Kid being, I remember seeing those in the movie theater. I remember seeing Rocky, this has nothing to do with anything, by the way. I remember seeing Rocky III in the theater as a kid, being amazed by it because I was really into the A-team and Mr. T was in the A-team and he was also in Rocky III. But I was young enough and inexperienced in the ways of the world that it never occurred to me that there actually was a Rocky I and II. Um, I just thought Rocky III was the greatest movie I'd ever seen. Didn't know why it was called Rocky III. But man, it was great. But the reason I'm telling you about growing up in the 80s is... My parents came to faith when I was about five years old, and uh, we started going to um, a Catholic church in town, and there weren't a lot of children in that church. There weren't a lot of kids our age, and so the church didn't really have a youth ministry, Uh, and so a lot of my experience in church was being with my parents, kind of like we're doing here in this season, being in the room for everything that was happening, and um, my parents love music. They've always loved music. And this, when I was a kid, this was kind of right around the time of uh, the early days of CCM. Do you know what CCM is? Contemporary Christian Music. It was a whole industry. It still exists, but not like it was back in those days. Back in those days was the days of superstars. There were major tours, and they would go through. And I lived in Indiana, and Indiana is striking distance from Nashville. Most everybody lived in Nashville who was in that industry, and so everybody came through uh, Indiana. And so I grew up going to concerts. This was my parents' youth ministry to us. 
is when somebody would come through town, they would buy like a block of tickets. They'd buy 12 tickets and they'd say, invite friends and we'll just take a bunch of people over and we'll go see. So this was in the days of, I'd be remiss if I didn't name some of these bands. Petra, DeGarmo and Key, Russ Taff, who I was partial to because of the name, uh, also because he was the best. Um, Mylon Lefevre and Broken Heart. Anybody remember them? Yeah? Uh, Whiteheart, Amy Grant, DC Talk, Jeff Moore, Striper. Come on. And last but not least, Rich Mullins. And so this was something that I did. Every tour that came through, I must have seen a hundred concerts growing up. We went to everything. And we were pretty uh, indiscriminate when it came to style. Like I'd go see a Christian heavy metal band and then I'd go see uh, Dallas Holm. Uh, which if you've never heard his music, it sounds like his name. Uh, very Dallas Holmy. Um, anyway, a couple years ago, a friend of mine was given tickets to a to the Gospel Music Hall of Fame induction ceremony where they would be posthumously inducting Rich Mullins into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. And he asked me if I wanted to go. Few artists have been as influential in my life as Rich Mullins. Uh, I love Rich Mullins' music. I was deeply grieved when he died. Uh, and when I was, when my friend said, hey, do you want to come? I was like, absolutely, I would love to go to this. One, to honor Rich Mullins and to just be a part of that whole thing. But two, because I'd grown up in this industry, and this was the Gospel Music Association, and this was the industry that was kind of in, responsible for, for a lot of this music that I grew up with and was just part of my DNA and part of what I knew and loved. We got the magazine. I, I knew this was just my world. And so we went, and we went, it was on Lipscomb University's campus in their, in their uh, big auditorium there where they play basketball, and down on the main floor, there were about 50 uh, tables with white linen and candles and china and a, a wait staff that was all dressed in black and tuxedos, and you know, the little, they'd scrape off the little breadcrumbs with that little bread knife that, you know, that sort of thing. It was fancy. It was a fancy thing. And down here, you're, you've got all the people from DC Talk, and there's Amy Grant, and she's talking to Michael W. Smith, and they're over there, and there's a couple of Winans in the room. There's always Winans in the room. And, and, and there were all these people there, and it was an amazing thing to see everybody in one place. And our tickets were in general admission in the stadium seating, so we were not on the floor. And so I remember our ticket, we were being shown, kind of you have to go up these stairs and around, and so we sit in the bleacher arena seats, and down on the floor is my world, my people, my music, this, this thing that has so been woven into the way that I think, and what I love, and what I grew up doing, but I can't be a part of it, because I have to sit in the stadium seating. And what made it even worse is it was an arena that would sit about 5,000 people. And those of us with the general admission tickets, there were maybe 70 of us. So just imagine being in a room full of hundreds and hundreds of people. There's 70 of you that have to sit kind of on the perimeter. 
you know, and we're just sitting over there. I just felt so out of place and it felt so wrong because I was so close. These are my people and yet I'm separated. I'm separated by this divide and I'm watching from a distance and I'm feeling out of place. And though their music was such a big part of my life, the industry that they were a part of had built a wall and I had come unto my own and my own would not receive me is how I felt. Not without a special laminated lanyard. And so there I sat. Have you ever felt that way where you're so close, you feel like you're so close to a place where every fiber of your being, you feel like you belong. These are my people. This is my place. And yet, you feel like you just can't access. You can't access. This is not the design for the child of God. For the person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things that we see over and over and over again in Scripture is this promise, this, this declaration to us that we have a place where we belong, that we are not on the outside looking in, but that we are grafted in, that we're a part of what the Lord is doing. But think of a time when you have felt that way. Think of a time when you have felt like you were on the outside looking in. I know for some, because I, we, we, I talk with you, I know that for some of us, um, even here in this room, we felt like on the outside looking in with this whole pandemic and with the way that the world is responding, and we feel like, I, I don't connect with the world in the way that I used to anymore, right? For some of us, we're feeling just this, from the time we were young, we can't remember a time when we didn't feel insecure, right? When we didn't feel like uh, everybody else kind of got a memo that I didn't get. And I'm just trying to figure out how to get up to speed with what seems so connected for everybody else. What does that insecurity feel like? What does it look like for us? Sometimes it looks like anxiety. Sometimes it looks like fear. Sometimes it looks like just a pervading cynicism, right? That, that our general disposition toward other people is... Uh, cynical or situations, and so we're quick and we're clever, and we have a comeback for everything. But really what we're doing is we're just protecting ourselves and we're, we're preserving a distance because it's what we're accustomed to. And it's what it feels safe. But there's something in us that longs to not be in the bleachers, but to be down on the level, right? To be down on that floor, to be seated in those tables, to be in this place where you know, I, I'm a part of this. This has been a part of me. And something in us longs to know that we're secure. But battling insecurity can just be paralyzing. I know it can be for me. It can just be paralyzing. And so the question that this psalm is asking is, how secure are you? How secure are you really before God? Do we really belong? How tenuous is our faith? And so this psalm takes us into that very issue. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through it a couple verses at a time uh, this morning as we unpack it. So here's how it starts. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. A few years ago, I went on a trip with a group of people to the Holy Land and was standing in Jerusalem, and our guide read from this psalm. He read, actually, verse 2, when we were standing on Mount Zion, where the temple mount is on one side of us, and we're getting ready to go up the stairs. And he said, look around you as I read this verse. And he read this, and we were surrounded by 
this kind of, we were in this little tiny basin, but we were surrounded everywhere we looked by, by, by the hillside. And so it's amazing to see this psalm where he says, those who trust, they're, they're like Mount Zion, those who trust in the Lord. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. I actually stood in that place where the psalm was inspired and, and, and experienced that. But what the psalmist is telling us here is he's talking about our footing in this life as the children of God. Should we fear that our place before him is just gonna crumble at any moment? Should we fear that he is going to look at us and say, I'm, I'm through with you? No, for those who trust in the Lord, we're like a castle set on a mountain. That's what he says. I used to think that one wrong decision, one missed opportunity, would just completely ruin my life. That, it's, that, it's, that, that life is a series of coin flips, and as long as you guess right, you're okay, and if you guess wrong, it's just over, right? What if I choose the wrong job? What if I marry the wrong person? What if I live in the wrong place? Do you fear that your entire existence is fragile? There's good news. And the good news is this. God's word is telling us it's not. It's not. You're like a castle built on a mountain. What makes it that way? What makes it so secure? Because it's not just flowery language. It's not just the Lord saying, oh, you're like a castle built on a mountain. Stick with that image. He actually unpacks it in the next verses of why we're so secure. And it's the Lord's involvement. It's the Lord's involvement in our lives that makes us so secure. So this is what he says in verse three. For the, and I love this because this is a fascinating turn of phrase here. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Okay, so let's stop here. What's the image? There's a scepter of righteousness, right? So the scepter is the symbol of power in a king's hand, right? It's that gold thing with all the precious gems on it that, you know, that he holds in his hand. It's the scepter of, of power. It's how you know this is the guy who holds all the power. And what he's saying here is the scepter of wickedness, that will not rule over you. That's what the Lord is saying. But the picture is not here of an evil king coming in from the outside to rule over you in wickedness. What the psalmist is talking about is he's talking about us. And what he's saying is God will not let us take up the scepter of wickedness and rule over our own lives in wickedness, that he will oppose us in this. And that is where the security lies is that the Lord is intervening. He's not talking, because these, you know, the people of Israel knew what it was for there to be evil, conquering kings who meant only bad things for them. They knew what a scepter of wickedness was like in the hand of a foreign king. They knew what it was like to have a target on their backs by nations, warring nations that wanted them eliminated. They knew what that was like, and they'd seen so much, and they participated in so much. And they knew the danger and the threat 
of what, what could happen if they were governed by wickedness from outside over them. But here, the Lord is saying, the scepter of wickedness will not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, let, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. Lest we actually wield the scepter of wickedness ourselves. Wickedness governing from within, the Lord is saying, is not what's ultimately going to rule over you. And that is profoundly good news because left to my own, that is what's gonna happen with me. It's probably what's gonna happen with you, right? If the Lord just leaves us unchecked to do what we want, it's not gonna go well. Let's think about what that means. What does it look like for God to remove the scepter of wickedness from our hand? One, it means that scripture is saying that we have a proclivity to reach for that, right? That we have a proclivity to reach for a scepter of wickedness, that we have a proclivity to reach for something that would make us strong and powerful at the expense of others. And so what does it look like for God to remove that? It looks like heart work, right? It looks like the Lord working in our hearts, the Lord growing us, the Lord developing us. The Lord is opposed to letting wickedness rule in you, and he's opposed to then letting wickedness rule through you by extension. How glad are we that God does this? It's like a parent, really. It's like a contest of wills, right? That the Lord would remove something from our hand, that he would take a toy. You've taken a toy away from a child probably at some point. There's a moment, there's a transaction, there's a contest of wills. There's a reason that you have that they may not understand or they understand, but they just don't like. But in that moment, who must prevail? Parent, you must prevail. Otherwise, your child is learning to pick up the scepter of wickedness, right? They're saying, ah, I know how to work you now, right? It's a contest of wills. And what the Lord is doing is he's saying, part of the way that I secure you is I oppose wickedness in you. Is when you stretch out your hand to do wrong, I oppose that. Because you're not meant to live that way. And so part of our security is that the Lord is committed to rooting evil out of us. And then the psalmist continues this from this place of saying, Lord, you make us secure. You won't let wickedness rule over us. You're opposed to letting wickedness rule in us. Then he prays this. He says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked way, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. He's praying for peace to rule over the people of God. Let peace rule over your people. Do good to those who love you. Lead us out of the traps of evil. It's a humble prayer because we're acknowledging that we need this. It's a humble prayer because on the one hand, we're acknowledging the truth that our faith is not fragile. And that's not because we are strong, but it's because God is strong. And yet on the other hand, it's humble because we're recognizing that we need God's intervention. We need God's intervention to keep us and to hold us because we are likely to take up the scepter 
of wickedness. We're likely to want to govern our own lives and as much as we can within our reach in ways that are self-serving. And the Lord stays our hand. He works in us. He opposes that in us. He grows us. He matures us. He thwarts us. Why would God care about turning his people away from evil? That, that question may sound like on its surface it's obvious, right? Why would God care about turning people away from evil? The answer is actually a profoundly deep theological pool when you think about it. Because the answer to the question, why would God care? Why doesn't he just judge us and smite us and move on and just wash his hands of the whole thing? The answer is because... Are you ready? He loves us. That's why. He loves us. We belong to him because he loves us. It's so simple. I hear it coming out of my mouth and you're thinking, I'm glad I didn't buy tickets for this. We already know that God loves us. Yeah, but think about it. He doesn't have to. He does. He does, and he is the one who works, and he's the one who forms, and he's the one who draws, and he's the one who transforms, and he's the one who saves. He's the one who does all these things. Why? Because he loves us, because we were created to be with him forever. He delights in his people, and that is a theological wonder, and it's a beautiful thing. And so the psalmist prays, then if that's how we're meant to live in relationship with you, if that's who we are to you, if this is how we were meant to be, then let peace rest on us. Let us be a people of peace. Let us be a people who delight in you and your holiness and peace with one another. And we live in a time where that's not easy, is it? I'm a part of a little something we call, on the inside, Christian Twitter. Any of you on Twitter? Christian Twitter is no big deal. It's just being a Christian and following other Christians on Twitter. But what you see there is not good. <laughs> it's, it's an ugly place, right? It's an ugly... People tear each other down. People fight and nitpick over small things. They dismiss each other from the kingdom of God over small things. It's, it's a hard place to be. And this psalm is modeling for us, when you see all that's broken in the world and you see your need for God to work to keep you from reaching out your hand to pick up the scepter of wickedness, and he says, I'm not gonna let that rest upon you. And you see the psalmist pray, Lord, let, let peace be what marks us. Let peace be what rests upon us. There's a, there's a desperation in that prayer and there's also a rightness in that prayer that that would be what we would want. And so we should pray this. Lord, let peace rest upon your people. God promises that we are secure and God's promises are secure, even in tough times. In fact, the only security that we ever really have in this life comes from him. That's the only security that we ever really have, right? We've gotten a huge education in that over the last four months, right? Economically, 
uh, when it comes to socially, when it comes to the pandemic. We've gotten a huge education and our security in this world, nothing's guaranteed. But our security before the Lord is the only security that we really have because circumstances change. But God doesn't change. He never changes. And so we pray as the psalm instructs, as Jesus taught us, deliver us from evil. And how does God do that? He does it in a lot of ways. I'm going to name two as a way of bringing this thing in for a landing. The first way that God keeps his promises or the first way that God delivers us, this, the first way that God delivers us from evil is he does it by being faithful to keep his promises. So he delivers us from evil by being faithful to keep ancient promises. God's not fickle. He's already told us that he's making all things new and that every sad thing will come untrue. I have a, a tattoo on my arm over here. It's a line of Hebrew text. And it's the opening verse to the book of Malachi. And it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's the opening line of Malachi. And the reason it's meaningful to my family, it was meaningful to me as a young pastor. I preached a series on Malachi. And it, just, it was a pretty transformative study for me doing the book of, of Malachi. Because it opens with um, an oracle of the Lord from the prophet Malachi to the people of Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. Everything's great so far, right? The following verse, the next statement is, but you say, God's people, how? How have you loved us? And it's because they've been through exile, they've been through war, they've been through famine, they've been through infighting, they've been through all of this stuff, they're threadbare souls, and they're tired, and they're jaded, and they say, yeah, how? So we're two verses in, and the Lord says, I have loved you, and the people say, how? And then the rest of the book of Malachi is the Lord not letting that stand as a rhetorical question but saying, okay, let's get into it. And it is uh, the first couple of chapters, read with caution, because it's basically a litany of all the things that they have done that demonstrate why they have no right to even assume that he should have loved them because of all the ways that they've turned from him and all the ways that they have abused the sacrificial system and the way that their priests have gotten fat off the sacrifices of the people and, and all these things that just go on, how, they, how they've abused marriage and money and sex and power and religion and worship and all of these things, the name of the Lord, they've broken everything. And he says, but I didn't turn my back on you. I kept you. And not only did I keep you, but I've kept you like, like an eagle protecting her young. I've protected you. I've kept you under my wing. And not only that, the book of Malachi ends with him saying, and I am sending one who will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, which is a verse that makes me tear up every time I hear it. Because it's such a surgical verse when it comes to the Lord addressing 
the way that he is going to reconcile the brokenness of this world. There are few relationships in the world that exist that can have more pain and more sorrow in them than the relationship between a parent and a child. Right? Marriages fall apart, and that happens, and it's sad, but the relationship between a parent and a child. And so we say, how have you loved us? And the Lord says, in spite of all this, I've kept you, and this is, what, this is where it's all going. The Lord is faithful to keep ancient promises, and the reason that I got that as a tattoo in Hebrew with no vowel pointing. If you read Hebrew, if you know anything about Hebrew, there's a vowel pointing that teaches you kind of how to pronounce. But in the ancient text, that wasn't there. And I have it in that plain Hebrew text without any vowel pointing. One, to remind me that every promise that I cling to was made millennia before I existed. On the other side of the planet, in a language I don't speak. So when we find ourselves in a place wondering if God is going to love us as much today as he did yesterday, or if he's going to be as kind to me today as he was last year, man, is it helpful to remember that the promises that we cling to are promises that God made millennia ago in a culture that is not ours, in a language that is not ours, in a place that is not ours. And those are the promises that he is being faithful to. And those are the promises to never leave and to never forsake his people. So here I stand, on this side of the world in Nashville, as somebody who is under those promises that he spoke to Abraham and to David and to Moses and to and through Christ to the apostles and to the watching world. And so what does it mean for us? If God is, if God is if he, part of the security is he's faithful by keeping his ancient promises, it means that we should know these promises, that we should go to the source of these promises, which is his word. That's why we talk about the importance of scripture. It's why we preach from scripture. It's why we talk about the importance of being in his word every day is because we need to know the promises that God has given us. We need to know them. So read, study, take up his word. Let it be a part of you. Let it catechize your soul because your soul is being catechized every day, all the time. Second, God keeps us and secures us by opposing in us our own ventures into sin. He knows the scepters of wickedness that we each prefer. And he tells us you won't find rest there. You won't find what you're looking for there. And so for us, what does that mean? It means not only to spend time reading and studying his word, but it means to spend time in prayer, asking the Lord, show me, show me what I run to for power and security. Show me the things that drive my heart towards security that aren't you. And oppose those things in me when I chase after them to where I know that that's not where I'm meant to go. Third thing he does, I know I said two, but there's a third. 
He does this by calling us to return again and again to familiar, anchored truths. And so for us, that involves training our hearts to remember repetition, ceremony, habit, right? We live in an era right now that can be pretty cynical toward anything that smacks of ceremony, as though you should automatically just stick the word empty in front of it. Any ceremony is empty ceremony. I beg to differ. I think ceremony is rehearsing something. It's practicing something. We're about to do it with the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. It's ceremony. It's more than ceremony, but it's not less than ceremony, right? Because we do it all the time, and we do it in the same way, and we say the same things, and we remember the same things, and it's on me as a pastor who has been called to serve this congregation to never get super inventive with the Lord's table and to try to come up with new, fresh ways to talk about it. Because my job as a minister of the gospel is to talk about this table in old, ancient ways and to remind us that we're not reinventing new things, but we're returning to an old truth. Jeremiah tells the people of God, walk in the old way, walk in the established path, because it will lead you where you need to go. And so we're going to take communion. We're going to come to this table. What are we doing here? We're remembering, we're proclaiming, right? If you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you know those are the words I use for the Lord's table. I say we remember and we proclaim. Those are the two footfalls of the approach to the Lord's table. Remember, proclaim, remember, proclaim. And one thing, remember, one thing we remember and we proclaim is how this table is Jesus telling us your place is secure with the Lord because of what I've done on your behalf. And we see that security echoed in a prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples in the upper room during the first communion when the Lord had his disciples there on the night he was betrayed and he took the bread and he broke it. He prays this prayer. It's in John 17. I encourage you to spend time with it this week. But he prayed that night about what was going to happen. And he prayed for his disciples, for those who were with him there. But at the end of the prayer, Jesus took his words in a surprising direction. And he prayed for us. He prayed for us here. He really did. And it was a prayer about our security and about our unity and about our peace. And so let me read these as, as closing to this sermon. This is from Psalm 17, 20 to 26. You can look it up if you want, but just let me read it. Psalm 17, 20 to 26. This is Jesus praying to the Father on the night he goes, he, on the night he's arrested. I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples who are there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world will know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. So he's not just asking for their unity, but he's asking 
And he's, and he's talking about his desire to be with us forever. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The psalmist stands in God's holy city, takes in the beauty. He lets himself feel the holiness of his pilgrimage and he thanks God for his place among God's people. And every prayer thanking God for our peace with him should include a petition to grow in holiness and a plea to be free from wickedness. And we don't pray this in the hope that God might receive us, but in the confidence that he already has. There is a place where we belong, and that place is with him. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the beauty of these verses uh, that remind us of your presence and your power and your desire to have us with you. Lord, there is mystery there that you would desire to be with us for all eternity. There's mystery there. And yet there's also confidence that we draw from your word because you do not qualify that in any way, that you, you are so plain in the way that you declare that to us and in the way that you make that relationship possible. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. As we come to your table, may it be more for us than an empty ceremony, but may it be instead a return again to ancient truths that anchor us and anchor our souls and hold us fast. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.